You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Still the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore, an Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. If I if I start pausing mid-sentence, it's because I've been up a lot of hours grading this morning. Uh, I imagine that my co-hosts are staring down that same, uh, that same threat. And one of those co-hosts is David Grubbs, who's an Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University. How are you doing, David? Oh, tired, man. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, our, our, our two youngest uh, are barking like seals and just gushing this glistening stuff from their noses. A like, nine-month-old is leaving like a little slick trail behind him like a snail. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to get you to throw, some, throw them some raw fish, David. Yeah, my uh, <laughs> Katie has lost her voice. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty. Uh, it's it's a rough time at the Gruff household, but we'll get through it. David, I remember those days, and I don't miss them. I, I'll just yeah. I'll just be real honest about that. Um, <laughs> but our uh, fishmonger who just chimed in is uh, Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College in Saint Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, we're recording this the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and for those of you who aren't academics, let me explain to you what the week after Thanksgiving looks like. Do you remember the scene at the beginning of Jaws when the woman is swimming out very, uh, uh, very pleasantly in the uh, the dark ocean waters in early summer, and then out of nowhere the shark comes and grabs her and pulls her to her doom? Yeah, that's what Thanksgiving is like for academics. <laughs> swimming peacefully in the waters before the uh before the great white shark of uh end of the semester grading pulls you under the right. who saw that comingness yes yeah. yes and and yeah i i've told mary a number of times uh listeners you might have heard uh the crew making fun of me for being at disney world last week um taking a disney world vacation in the middle of finals week is a bad idea. I'll just go ahead and put that out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, you should have just come with uh, us and the Grubbses in May. Well, as as much as 108 degree temperatures and high humidity appeal to me, uh, I'll, I'll just have to pass on that one. It'll only be in the low 90s. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, as as uh, I guess with the, the the farmers as former Floridians and the Grubbses as current Houstonians. 108 degrees. Oh, by the way, if you don't think I'm going to be complaining about the heat that entire week, you've never met me. Uh, I'm always an uneasy Floridian. I will be disappointed if you don't complain about the heat the whole time. 
because nice. that's part of, that's that's part of the experience I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Should set up a meet and greet at Disney World. The Disney podcast do it every month. Oh, excellent. <laughs> well, at any rate, listeners, uh, hopefully uh, they told you last week, I haven't had a chance to listen yet, that we're talking about a divine and supernatural light. It is one of the... We did. I said, I said we didn't know what you were doing. Okay, well, yeah. now you know, listeners, <laughs> you know, if you, didn't, yeah. if you didn't read it off of your phone screen. Uh, we're talking about a divine and supernatural light. This is one of the more famous sermons of Jonathan Edwards. And David, most of our listeners who have heard of Jonathan Edwards will likely remember he's a key figure in American church history, one of the big names in the Great Awakening. So take a moment to tell folks what was going on in Massachusetts that was so great. Mm. So the Great Awakening uh, was a a movement of uh, evangelical renewal um, within uh, the the English speaking church. It was um, so uh, look, looking at the uh, looking at the sources that that I've got access to. It seems to have been something that was mainly happening within sort of uh, broadly Anglican, but then over over into other English church traditions. Um, figures like George Whitfield uh, was sort of an an, uh, an early dominant and continuing dominant figure in the First Great Awakening. Uh, oh, and years we're talking about the 1730s, 40s, 50s, around in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Whitfield, who is an uh, Whitfield is an Anglican, uh, also uh, sort of swept up in this uh, in this particular movement is uh, John Wesley and his brother Charles. Though uh, he he and Whitfield have some theological differences, their methods are actually um, very similar. Um, a lot of it consists of, of fervent preaching, uh, to the masses, uh, often in, uh, context outside of the church, uh, a public spa- square, uh, a, a field, all right. Mm. And, you know, hundreds, thousands are gathering to hear, um, this impassioned preaching, uh, that is, um, calling, in the proper, properly evangelical way, calling for a a response to uh, to the gospel. Um, this is in uh, a a contrast to what was um, not always, but often the case, and in, in in homily at the time, um, sermons in church by those who'd been you know sort of trained in the in the Oxbridge tradition. Um, were not necessarily fervent calls to, you know, repentance and obedience as much as they were, um, learned discourses on, you know, edifying notions. Mm. And the, uh, the great awakening was, uh, well, I mean, the, the name is right there and, uh, the metaphor is right there in the name. Uh, it was shaking this sleepy Christianity awake with, uh, the demands of, uh, of conversion, repentance, and holy life, um, and you can see how that that interest in, uh, especially the uh, conversion and holy life side of it, ends up becoming uh, the animating principle in the uh, Wesleyan Methodist Nazarene tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's 
happening in England and it's happening in uh, the colonies in North America, the English colonies. Uh, George Whitfield is preaching in the colonies a lot. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin goes to listen to George Whitfield, enjoys listening to hear him talk, is not thoroughly persuaded, but enjoys hearing him talk. Um, uh, Was West Franklin w- ever thoroughly persuaded by anyone, though? Except Franklin? <laughs> Probably not. And even then, he doesn't seem too sure. <laughs> may, 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 that that might be his thing. You know, Franklin is is too self-aware of his own... Um, of his own self-interestedness to trust anyone else's earnestness. Um, wow, that's so postmodern. Anyways, oh, you came up with it right off the fly. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so Wesley is also um, uh, he was also preaching in colonies as well, uh, and so it had made its way across the pond. Jonathan Edwards uh, is a pastor uh, in uh, in New England, uh, in Massachusetts, where he he's you know pastored a church. I believe it's his father-in-law's church. Pastored it for decades. In the end, um, the church kind of ran him off for reasons that we needn't get into because that's long after this sermon gets preached. Um, but what's going down in in Jonathan Edwards, New England, is these ripples of the Great Awakening in which the fervor, the, the, the fervency of preaching, and in particular, the kind of strong and visible emotional response to the fervor of preaching has, has kind of become this defining element in the Great Awakening, uh, which he has a certain degree of sympathy for. Um, He's he's uh, he's a Puritan theologian. He's a Reformed theologian, um, but he has a very strong interest in the aesthetic. He's very interested in understanding um, human passions, human desires, uh, ideas like beauty and joy are things that Edwards is interested in. He's probably the most cerebral person talking about joy that I know of. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, it's 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 sometimes reading Jonathan Edwards is like watching data discover emotions. Um, <laughs> anyways, he he's interested in this element uh, in the Great Awakening, but he's also got some cautions, uh, which is why he writes uh, another one of his uh, more famous works, uh, a, a, a pamphlet called Religious Affections, mm-hmm. in which he talks about um, uh, what are what defines a, a, a real spirit wrought heart change versus just getting all hyped up in the, uh, in, in a kind of evangelical, you know, kind of pep talk, you know, spirit rally, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. He wants to be able to distinguish between those. So divine and supernatural light, this particular sermon, um, some of its concerns are overlapping with that. He's really interested in paying close attention to what's going on in the hearts of the converted in order to be, in order to distinguish between what is an authentic work of conversion of, of new life wrought by the spirit. What does that look like versus just getting excited because the pastor's descriptions of hell are making you scared, Mm -hmm. which 
he would also do. So, <laughs> can, can I add the other pole of that um, of continuum? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, on, uh, you you mentioned Edwards's worries about the the more pietistic manifestations of the Great Awakening. What mm-hmm. he feared on the other side is it, a trap. Puritan New England had fallen into over the last hundred years or so. So in the early days of that community, you were expected to have some sort of spiritual experience to which you could point that would allow you to convert and become a member of the community. Generations on, they run into some problems, right? Which is that when you're raised in the community, you're not very likely to have some sort of dramatic spiritual experience. So this guy, Solomon Stoddard, who is, I believe, Edwards's grandfather, um, comes up with something called the halfway covenant, which says basically you can be a member of the Puritan church, kind of, even if you don't have that conversion experience. And, yeah. and you can be a member except that you can't take communion and you can't be baptized, which, yeah. uh, you know, well, are the only were, two sacraments for Calvinists. Yeah. Well, they were baptized as an infant. Right. But they have no, they have no conversion experience and so are not baptized their children, I think is, is the, yeah. The, the truth of that. Yeah. So Edwards is looking at this and sees a very dead, intellectualized Christian faith, which is funny because, as David points out, Edwards has a strong claim to be the most intellectual person who ever lived in America. <laughs> I mean, the man read for 12, 14 hours a day. He, he, he was an intellectual powerhouse, our first real philosopher. And, and, but anyway, he looks at, he looks at this, ha- this church under the halfway covenant and sees it as dead. And that's why he preaches a sermon like the very famous, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Mm-hmm. This was not typical of Edwards, but what he wants is to shock people into having the sort of conversion experience that will allow them to be full members of the church. Mm-hmm. And under the halfway covenant, he felt like, they were being rewarded for not having that experience. So yeah, it could go too far in the other direction, but Edwards is very concerned that things as they stand now are dusty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a, not quite a devil term so much as it is a, oh, I don't, I don't even know what we'd call it in, in, you know, we vary in terms, but <laughs> evangelical has kind of, that term has kind of fallen on hard times, but, in this particular context, it makes sense. Jonathan Edwards is an evangelical in the sense that um, he sees that the message of the gospel, um, you know, God sent his son to save us, repent, believe, um, confess Jesus as Lord, um, that he he believes that, that, that the evangel, the gospel, um, actually demands that we that we answer it um, in, a, in, in, a, in a way that is beyond just like, yes, well, God did say that. <laughs> right, right. You know, that, that something more than mental assent, something more than, um, than uh, you know, name on the church roll, that, uh, that there is a spiritual reality that the gospel points to that must be present. And so the conversion, the, the, the reality of spiritual life, um, of a renewal of spiritual life in the person who believes the gospel, um, is this important thing to him because he's seen what, like, like you said, Michael, he's seen what a kind of pro forma, um, Christianity is, which is to his mind, not a Christianity at all. That's right. And I mean, the shame about Edwards 
is that he has passed into popular understanding almost entirely through Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right. So, right. like, um, in, in the musical Hamilton, Aaron Burr, uh, believe it or not, is Jonathan Edwards' grandson. Mm-hmm. And and Burr says in that musical, my my grandfather was a Hellfire preacher. Well, yeah, he was, but Hellfire but, preacher is like tenth or eleventh on the list of things Jonathan Edwards was. He so, was also a sh- taste the sweet honey of God's you know beauty good guy. That that whole John <laughs> Piper desiring God thing is that? Not, uh, yes. Yeah, that's yeah, John Piper. That's, that's right out of uh, that's right out of Edwards, the, the oh, Christian yeah. hedonist movement. So if you think you understand Edwards because you've read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, do read one of his other, I'm sure, tens of thousands of pages of writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is this is as good a place as any to start. Although his personal mm-hmm. narrative is also very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Ed- Edwards is Ed- Edwards. I think is is kind of like uh, I-, I can't remember who said it of Augustine that whoever claims to have read all of Augustine is a liar. Um, I think you <laughs> might be able to say that about Jonathan Edwards too. Yeah, well, I, I mean, he was just unbelievably productive. Right. I can't I can't remember how many volumes the Yale Edwards is up to now. Yeah, but I mean they I add mean, periodically. I mean they're still not done. I, I, I would say that he spent as many hours a day writing as he did reading, but then when you add that up, it ends, you end up with 28 hours a day. <laughs> Which, maybe he was uh, James K. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, one other thing about this sermon in particular is he delivered it in 1733, and it was so popular that the congregation demanded he publish it. Huh. Wow. Which, uh, you know, there are there are worse things to say to your pastor than that. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. N- another note about his congregation. Even after they officially dismissed him from the pastorate, they retained him for like a certain number of years thereafter to fill the pulpit because they didn't have anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's funny. I'm like, and he did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have walked out of there with uh, my middle fingers raised high. <laughs> I mean... To talk about like long suffering Christian charity. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and as, as a fired preacher, that's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, also, let, was, go he, ahead, was go he the first president of Princeton? Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. The college of New Jersey, as it was then known. Mm-hmm. Very, 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 very briefly. Um, yeah. I think he, he died like immediately afterwards. But this guy's this guy's importance for American thought almost can't be overstated, and and not just like religious American thought. American philosophy begins with Jonathan Edwards. Right, right. Well, anyway, guys, I mean I, that's that's a heck of an introduction to Jonathan Edwards. But let's turn to the sermon, uh, Michael. Early in this text, before the doctrine section, Edwards distinguishes between knowledge that comes to us by means of natural secondary causes and knowledge that comes to us without secondary causation by supernatural means. Now, to what extent does this nature and supernature distinction match up with what 21st century folks think it means, and to what extent is Edwards making a distinctively 18th century move here? Well, I mean, I don't think the nature-supernature distinction in Edwards is entirely unfamiliar to modern readers, certainly not as unfamiliar as like the way Thomas Aquinas talks about it. Mm-hmm. But... 
when you hear that term supernature, you can't expect some sort of grand miracle because that's not what Edwards is talking about. Right. He's not talking about like the hand of God scooping out a lake or something like that. Supernatural in this case works with rather than against the natural senses. It's adding something to them. Um, it's not above nature. It's nature plus, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. The distinction is between general revelation and special revelation or between common grace and saving grace. And those are all uh, good Calvinist terms. So he says um, fairly early on, God is the author of all knowledge and understanding whatsoever. And then he talks about like moral understanding and like carpentry and all sorts of stuff like that. God is the author of such knowledge yet so that flesh and blood reveals it. So you know it. Um, not because God directly imparts the knowledge into your mind, but because somebody taught you how to do carpentry. Mm-hmm. But this spiritual knowledge spoken of in the text is what God is the author of and none else. He reveals it and flesh and blood reveals it not. So that is, that is, um, that is special revelation. This is something God is giving. Uh, I, I don't want to say just to you because Edwards is very clear that God is not giving it just to you. He's giving it through the Bible and then illuminating your ability to see it. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the light in the title. Um, but the point is it doesn't come, you're, you're not taught it by other human beings. You, you certainly don't figure it out by the aid of natural reason of which, um, Locke, or excuse me, <laughs> I'm showing my hand here, of which Edwards, who is a follower <laughs> of Locke, is very skeptical. Uh, Instead, that light is shown upon things that have been revealed directly by God. And that distinction ends up being developed much further by Abraham Kuyper in the 19th century, but it's here in Edwards first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I shouldn't say first. It, it could very well predate him, but it, it, it predates Kuyper, who was the most famous formulator of it. Mm-hmm. Now, all of this is made more complicated later in the sermon, because later he's going to say that under the influence of the divine and supernatural light, quote, the faculties are made use of as the subject and not as the cause. And that, that clarification is not clarifying to me. I'm actually pretty confused <laughs> by it. Do you guys have some sense of the difference between being a subject and being a secondary cause, as he calls the faculties in, in his description of common grace? Uh, well, go ahead, David. Yeah, you, you, you first, Nathan. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think the distinction there uh, is one between a a free and therefore capable of true reciprocation subject, a, a true person, versus a secondary cause, which is simply a vehicle for the divine activity. Uh, so I, I and I, I might be pulling medieval categories too readily into there, David. So mm-hmm. uh, you can correct that if I'm if I'm reaching too far back on that one. I wonder too whether he might be getting at the um, the distinction between uh, an uh, an idea, uh, uh, you know, a, an, a, a mental object that the mind can contemplate that is received via the senses versus one that is, um, in a sense, constructed or imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, that that he wants to say that that there there are ideas that that we can contemplate that our reason um, in some sense fashions. So that yes, the 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 eye of our reason is looking at it, but it's also looking at this thing that it kind of helped put together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to speak. So to speak. Whereas this is this he wants to say is uh, this is this is not the end result of a line of argument that the mind has 
um, you know, has kind of built up, right? You know, the mind has not kind of assembled its little, its, its, its kind of rational tinker toys and is now beholding, you know, the beauty of this construct that it is, that it has assembled, but rather it is, um, it is apprehending it. It is sensing it. Mm-hmm. Um, some, does that, does that seem closer? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I think this is a, obviously homiletic. It is a sermon, but it is a philosophical account of the Christian doctrine of election. Right. So, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, um, the fact that by nature we all have the capacity as human beings to use language and to hear arguments and to form arguments and to be convinced and to remain unconvinced and so on and so forth. I think what Edwards is fleshing out here is the fa- the conviction, I'll call it, that Christians have had uh, really, I mean, as early as the New Testament, that uh, there is some kind of divine act that accompanies those things so that the seed sometimes doesn't fall on good soil, but sometimes it does and grows 30 fold and 60 fold and a hundred fold. Uh, so I mean, you know, for what makes the difference. Yeah. For seeds to do that is not natural. It is beyond nature. Mm -hmm. Like Michael was saying. Uh, and you know, here Edwards is, I I think giving a, a fairly sophisticated psychological, psychological account of, what it would mean for that supernatural growth to happen in that parable. Yeah. I mean, you guys can answer Well, hopefully you guys can answer this question better than I have. Um, I don't, I don't have a good grip on what's being said during the enlightenment about, uh, to, to, to kind of explain the mechanics of, of rationality, what's going on when a mind thinks, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know, I know at some point I read most of Locke, like none of it is in my head anymore. <laughs> so I, I can't, I, I, I'm, ha- I have a difficulty putting this into the context the way you're, you're kind of inviting us to do with this question, Nathan. Mm-hmm. Michael, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think we can overstate the fact that Locke is an empiricist, and so he's not as concerned with reason as a guiding force as okay. somebody like Descartes or Leibniz or um, those are the two major rationalists I can think of for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Right, right. Um, Ed- Edwards, from my understanding, I haven't read I haven't read a huge amount of Edwards, but Edwards follows Locke pretty closely and, and translates, translates Locke's emphasis on experience. And in, um, in an essay concerning human understanding, mm-hmm. is that the name? I always get it confused yeah. with the, the yeah, similar I, 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 titled Hume essay. Yeah. I think you just recited the Hume title. Yeah. It's whatever it is. It, it's yeah. the, uh, <laughs> the Locke essay on epistemology. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're, we're talking about the Locke essay with the plain vanilla title, not the Hume essay with the similarly plain vanilla title. I'll get nice. to Hume later anyway. <laughs> um, but the Locke is very adamant that all of our knowledge comes through experience. That is, there's no way to like reason your way into anything. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is just combining stuff you have already experienced. Right, man. So I I I, I think that that Edwards follows. Hume here in in not seeing reason as all that important 
What matters is what you've experienced. But at the same time, you can't think of Edwards then as some sort of like postmodern subjectivist because he's not. Uh, he thinks that experience is more or less objective. It's more or less universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, he's following what I understand of Locke in that. I mean, Locke is still an Enlightenment thinker. He's he's pre-Kantian. He 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 does he does not anywhere I've read, and I haven't read that entire essay, but I've read a good chunk of it and taught it several times. He doesn't he doesn't hold out for this notion that like the way you experience the world could be radically different than the way I experience the world. Unless, right, right. You know, we have no access to the thing in themselves. We have mm-hmm. access to the thing itself for uh for for Locke. There's just we have we have access through these things he calls secondary qualities and primary qualities. Um, mm-hmm. primary qualities would be things like solidity that like a rock would have in itself. And secondary qualities would be things like the color of the rock, which is an interaction between the rock and my experiencing mind of the rock. But mm-hmm. even so, the color still belongs to the rock. It just doesn't belong to it the same way solidity belongs to it. All of this is to say Edwards is putting forth a vision of um, of experience that is simultaneously experiential rather than rational and more or less objective. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a, it's a universalized sense of experience. Or what you know, Thomas Reed, the, the other famous Scots philosopher of the moment, would call uh, the common sense. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, David, I, the supernatural light uh, with which Edwards concerns himself is neither a conviction of sin, because he basically says, you know, everyone can do that, and it's not propositional claims, because anyone can read the Bible, but it goes beyond these things to lend what he calls new principles to the human intellect and capacities, um, that even a divine encounter, like Michael was talking about earlier, might not do. After all, Ebenezer Scrooge is always a possibility. So walk us through some of these distinctions among experiences that Edwards is concerned with as he expounds this doctrine. Right. One of the most, side note, one of the most satisfying things, I think, for a a teacher of rhetoric in reading reading Edwards, it's, it's, it's kind of the same in reading Thomas Aquinas, is his obsession with distinctions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, it's very, very satisfying. Now, not always is it super clear, but at least he's really, really interested in that. So he begins with what are these things that it is not? Um, as you said, he's, he's not talking about the conviction of sin. Um, because that is, uh, he, he, he says for, for, for two reasons, um, the conviction of sin, um, can come from the human conscience, which he says is part of, um, it's, it's, it's part of the human's, um, inner makeup, right? It's, it's, it's part of our soul. It's part of our, um, of our, of our person. Um, so, you know, the conscience of even the, the, the unregenerate person, um, will still alternately accuse and or excuse them, um, uh, concerning their actions. Also, the Spirit of God, um, the third person of the Trinity is concerned in convicting, uh, people of sin. This is an, you know, Edwards cites the scripture, uh, on this one. It's, uh, the, the, the Spirit has come to, uh, 
can convict men of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, that this is, this is one of, this is actually a divine act, um, that he sees as part of God's, um, commonly dispersed gracious action to humanity so that there's a principle inside of all humans that is working, um, to, uh, to convict them of their, uh, of, of their unrighteous acts. And then also God himself is, is, um, is working to, to stimulate this, this inner faculty of consciousness, uh, of conscience. Um, so, so that is, it, it is a divine act, but, um, Edwards is saying, uh, everybody's got a conscience and the Holy Spirit is working, um, to some extent in everybody convicting them of sin. It, and, uh, in order to restrain sin, it is one of the, one of the things that God does graciously. Um, but that doesn't explain this distinction that you talked about, Nathan. Mm-hmm. If everybody's got it, then it doesn't make, that's not the thing that makes the difference. Right. Um, he, he wants to say that it's not something that's, uh, happening in your imagination, right? Um, the divine and supernatural light is not, um, it's not some kind of, uh, inwardly generated mystical experience in which you just sort of think about the glories of heaven until you can practically see it. Right. This is not, uh, it's not an act in guided imagery. (laughs) If that makes sense, Uh, which, uh, which is a good distinction to make because there are, um, there are some Christian traditions that use that kind of, um, uh, guided imagination of of inner visualization as a as a kind of spiritual exercise uh ignatius loyola's spiritual exercises um has uh has that as a strong feature um i don't know if that's exactly what edwards has in mind but he says the divine supernatural light isn't that Mm -hmm. um it's not new revelations it's not new truths or proposition or propositions that aren't in scripture it's not that. So, so he doesn't mean that you just became a prophet. <laughs> Again, because he sees this as something that is common to every converted Christian, and every converted Christian does not receive a unique script, a, a, a unique, you know, prophetic revelation that needs to be inscriptuated, um, in 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 that kind of way. Um, and it's it's not necessarily an emotional thing. Uh, he says it. Not every affecting view that men have of the things of religion is this, right? The, the mere fact that, um, you know, it, they could sing a song about, you know, uh, the, the Christ's death in church and it makes you want to cry. He's like, yeah, that could just be that you like to cry, right? Because you might also cry at commercials about sad puppies with like Sarah McLaughlin on top. Um, you know, that, that could, you could just be a crier. That's not the divine supernatural light. So what is this thing? Um, this is the, this is the part that to me is the most interesting because it's, it, it is not so much a new idea or a new proposition as it is a kind of inward conviction, a sense, um, he, he has metaphors for it. Um, of the quality of an idea or a proposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
It is a true sense of the divine and superlative excellency of the things of religion, a real sense of the excellency of God and Jesus Christ, of the work of redemption, the gospel itself, and the ways and works of God revealed in the gospel. Um, there is a divine and superlative glory in these things, an excellency that is of a vastly higher kind and more sublime nature than in other things, a glory greatless, greatly distinguishing them from all that is earthly and temporal. So it's not a new idea. It's, it's a conviction of a quality about an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and he distinguishes in this between having an opinion and having a sense. Um, he says that one might have an opinion that God is holy and gracious, but not have the sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. Um, there is a difference, and this is, this is the money quote. This is what you put on the t-shirt. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. That, that I think, if, if, if that more, if that metaphor doesn't work for you, I don't think anything else in this discussion <laughs> I, is. I was going to say, I'm, I'm seeing our, our next, uh, Christian humanist mug. Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that, that would, that would be it. Um, and when he says that, he, he is dipping right into, um, a long stream of poetic language, um, going back into Hebrew scripture and the prophets and in the Psalms and then on into the new Testament, uh, a taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. You know, um, you, you know, uh, Psalm 119 talks about, you know, God's, God's words being sweet. Um, there, uh, the, the swanky, um, if I remember correctly, the swanky Latinate word is the delectation <laughs> mm. of, of God. Um, and that that's what this divine and supernatural light is. You can have all the right ideas and still sh- push them away and reject them. But when by this divine act, which I guess we still, we still have to talk about, um, when God works in such a way, you not only have the ideas, you also taste them. And it's that taste that makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I want to stay on this, but I have a hunch that some existentialist thinking might be worthwhile here. Uh, so, I mean, in this part of the sermon that David's talking about, when Edwards deals with that consciousness of sin and guilt, he seems to assume, and I mean, I think David expounded it well, that human beings will naturally know what's wrong and thus will naturally experience guilt. Yet at least what makes Dasein, human existence, such tricky business is that we're so capable of being so sincerely self-deceptive about our own ways in the world. So, I mean, at at this point, I mean, would readers gain anything by focusing more intently on the mind-warping ways of sin and guilt than Edward seems to do? I actually think he is more complicated than you're presenting him. Okay. Mm. Um, He does leave that place for conscience in general revelation. We were talking about that earlier. Consciousness Mm -hmm. of sin, he says... Quote, is from the Spirit of God only as assisting natural principles and not as infusing any new principles. Mm-hmm. But the divine and supernatural light involves an overturning of sin nature in some ways, and thus um, it can't arrive to the unaided reason. And I'm going to quote something rather long here. 
Not only are remaining principles assisted to do their work more freely and fully, but those principles are restored that were utterly destroyed by the fall, and the mind thenceforward habitually exerts those acts that the dominion of sin had made it as wholly destitute of as a dead body is of vital acts. And later, he presents the divine and supernatural light as destructive before it's able to be constructed. So it has to destroy what he calls the prejudices of heart against the truth of divine things. And, mm-hmm. and once that happens, the mind is able to receive the construction, um, the, the help to reason that the divine and supernatural light offers. So, in a way, and I know that reason is a freighted term with Edwards, but I think it kind of involves discarding one kind of reason for another kind, mm-hmm. um, which is a very Pascalian notion, right? The heart has its reasons, reason knows nothing of. It's also very Kierkegaardian, um, that, that teleological suspension of the ethical that Kierkegaard talks in, talks about in Fear and Trembling, whereby you exchange logic and universal reason and even universal morality for something higher. Um but I'm, I'm sure Edwards would say, instead of just saying one kind of reason is being exchanged for another, a faulty reason is being exchanged for a true reason. Um, mm-hmm. That is a reason built on this personal experience. Um, I would also say that his insistence that the divine and supernatural light isn't creative or innovative, um, it, but reveals only what has already been revealed in the Bible. I'd say that is a safeguard against self-deception too. Mm-hmm. Albeit it's an imperfect one. I mean, if you're if you're trying to constrain yourself within the Bible, the the sheer number of Protestant denominations, um, to say nothing of the the kind of non-affiliated evangelicals, um, I, I think that that does demonstrate that. Saying it only it only uh, explains what's in the Bible is not a safeguard against uh, self-deception, but uh, it 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 is something. Mm. At least it, at least it eliminates the shakers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I guess I and I, I can certainly see those passages, Michael. I guess the part that had me <laughs> curious is the part where he says, you know. Uh, the divine and supernatural light isn't the conviction of sin because that's common to all humanity. And I'm thinking, okay, without some kind of intellectual framework that delineates certain things as crimes and certain things as not, in what sense do we have a common sense of sin? And I guess I'm thinking, obviously, you know, a century and a half later, um, you know, someone like Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, sort of blowing open this notion of a sort of common sense of guilt and saying that, you know, senses of guilt are always historical. Um, is, is that, well, but go ahead, David, but yeah, but you could still say that, um, maybe everyone doesn't feel guilty about the same things and in the same way, Mm -hmm. but I think everybody has some sense of moral oughtness about something and against something. The structure of guilt is the same across cultures, even if the content of guilt isn't. Okay. Right. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. All right. It, all it, right. It, it, if you compare, if you know, and, and taking from, you know, taking from Edwards, he, he wants to talk about senses of, of perception, like beauty and taste. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there might be, a great deal of variance across cultures and um, across generations about what constitutes a beautiful human being. 
but I don't know of any human culture that doesn't believe that there that there's such a thing as a beautiful human being mm-hmm. and have have some conception of of what the of what that response to the beautiful other um, is. If that makes sense. Everybody thinks something tastes good. Every, you know, everybody who loves barbecue thinks that bar thinks that their barbecue tastes good, even if they have some serious disagreements about mustard and vinegar. <laughs> well, and, and likewise, all cultures think all cultures, almost all cultures agree that lying is wrong. They just reframe what lying is. So there's cultures where it's okay to lie to somebody outside of the tribe. That doesn't count mm-hmm. as a lie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I do think those structures are in some sense universal, even though you're right. I think, I think the sort of argument that says, well, um, you know, er, every culture knows what's right and wrong. I think that's, that's a little naive, but every culture has a structure of right and wrong. Every culture knows that mm-hmm. there is, is right and wrong. That, that makes sense to me. And likewise, every person has a consciousness that he is a sinner is very different than saying, Every person has a consciousness that uh, coveting your neighbor's wife is a sin. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah, we're not pushing this as far as C.S. Lewis's Tao. In, uh, Which I think Lewis himself disclaimed later in his life, didn't he? Um, I, I don't know that, but I, 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 I do know that um, in in other in other of his writings, I feel like I. I'm, I'm getting the sense of deja vu. I feel like we've talked about this. Um, in, There's in, nothing we haven't talked about. Yeah. There's in, plenty yeah. we haven't talked about. In the cultures that he knows the most intimately, mm-hmm. um, the medieval and the early modern, which he doesn't see is actually different. Um, he is much more nuanced when he talks about moral vision and things like that. than he is, in abolition of man when he talks about the Tao. But I think those are, those are differences of genre. He's got a larger point that he wants to make in abolition of man that if you get him on another occasion talking about particularities, he would then step back and qualify. But his main goal in abolition of man is to say that this, the sense of morality is a, is not simply a culturally located thing that all human beings have a sense of morality in which there might be more commonality than we give it credit for if we're coming at it from the perspective of, of kind of a mere sort of uh, cultural relativism. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Oof. But, well, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I, this is a good conversation because, again, uh, genre is important, as you guys just noted. I mean, you know, this is a, yep. a homily. Uh, and not only genre, but audience is important, right? So, I mean, uh, to the folks assembled there to hear him preach i mean there probably is a fairly common sense of what counts as a sin and what counts as good and what counts as bad um and and michael's right if you extend it beyond that the content gives way but the structure remains a sort of constant i, I like that way of thinking about it so i yeah. I, th- I think that's a good conversation to have but i, I want to turn from vice to virtue david so um I have a hunch I'm reading this wrong, too, uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this with you guys, because I like to put a Calvinist text in front of you, two and let you have at it. Um, <laughs> but when I read this sermon this time, and I've, I've, I've taught it a number of times, as Michael has, uh, the strong place that Edwards reserves for the active response of the person who receives this gift from God 
impressed me. So, mm-hmm. since I'm not a Calvinist, and you guys are, am I imposing Aristotle here where Aristotle has no business, or is there some kind of virtue ethics going on in this sermon? I, I, I tried to, uh, guided by this question, I tried to see, okay, where, what particular passage um, are you looking at? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, and... I, I was assuming that it was um, uh, the the section where he talks about um, the reason is um, the reason is necessary mm-hmm. to the function of this divine and supernatural light. Um, first, as a kind of um, as a kind of intellectual sensory organism, mm-hmm. um, it is the and if he's going to talk about the sweetness of honey, reason is the tongue of your soul. <laughs> All right. So, so it's this, I know it's weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's the metaphor though, right? That's the, that's the metaphor. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking also, about what the album's cover art would be. If the album is called reason is the tongue of your soul. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing like the rolling stones that, 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 that. anyway, um, the, uh, yeah, but the reason does have, uh, it does have a faculty in this. Um, it, it, it has, it, it senses it, but it also has something to do after it has received this light. Um, having this, what this light does is it assigns a particular quality to ideas and propositions that then the reason, um, with those this this other reformation that Michael's talked uh, that Michael's talked about that this light has kind of swept aside these kind of cobwebs of a kind of obstinate human resistance to the implications of some of these ideas, um, uh, you know, Calvin, our heart is an idol factory. Um, our reason is an idol factory, and we will continue producing those until, um, you know, a- a- Edward says we're, we're, our, our reason is going to continue to malfunction in a particular kind of way until that until that's cleared out. The divine supernatural light clears it out. But having done that, reason does have this job to do to work with these ideas, to work with these propositions, to then assemble them into arguments as a kind of vivified, reoriented, um, but still created human faculty, right? Um, so that, uh, so that there is still a job to be done, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think if we got into more Edwards, there would be we would be able to get into his psychology of of desire mm. of what what this taste of the sweetness of God is meant to do um, to your uh, desires, which orient your will and um, and its priorities, which then uh, which also shape uh, your ideas and how you uh, arrange them around not only ideas of what is logical, but also around ideas of what is fitting that's something that he does a lot at the end of this essay when he talks about the um it is it is fitting that we that 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 this act of god should work in this way he keeps he keeps um 
falling back on that. And he'll say, it's, this is reasonable. But when he says reasonable, he doesn't mean this is logical in the sense that all these propositions work together in a particular kind of Aristotelian way. What he's saying is it's almost a kind of aesthetic way of reasoning. This fits. This makes sense. It's um, like, um, it's like, is it Romans twelve one? Your, your, this is your reasonable service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is your fitting service. Um, uh, and I know this is a terrible metaphor, but it's like the feng shui in your main, in your brain is right. You've got the <laughs> flow of divine acts, and so you can now assemble these other ideas and arrange them in ways that suit the flow um, that you've that you've perceived through this taste of divine sweetness. Mm. Um, so, so, so there, uh, is, is that the kind of thing that you were looking at in this sermon? Yeah, um, that, that's certainly part of it. Uh, the other part of it is, uh, when he gets to, uh, and again, figuring out the, uh, the proper heading numbers for various things. Uh, <laughs> when he's getting Thirdly. to the, uh, the proposition that God, the, this light is given immediately by God he does he does some of this distinction work that you're talking about earlier david and he says that uh mm-hmm. it is not intended that the natural faculties are not made use of in it the natural faculties mm. are the subject of this light and they are the subject in yeah. such a manner that they are not merely passive but active in it and the acts and right. exercises of man's understanding are concerned and made use of in it um mm-hmm. so there's the, so there's the idea here that um and and you know we we've kind of built up to this already uh, that this isn't simply, uh, you know, we are obliterating whatever was there before and replacing it with a god robot, but that there are already capacities there and potentials there in the human being uh, that are awakened by this divine and supernatural light, but the things that are awakened were there before but merely dormant. It's not that they are coming out of nowhere and it's not that they are replacing what is human but they are bringing to life what is human mm-hmm. and in that in, yeah. in that respect i mean I, I think that that is uh at the very least uh resonant with the long traditions of virtue ethics yeah i i i i would agree with that and there's also a long tradition within within christianity of taking um of taking some of those ideas and, you know, Thomas Aquinas is, is in this and having this kind of, uh, this high view of the human faculties as possessed naturally by virtue of the original, original creation, Mm -hmm. but also wanting to, um, uh, to nonetheless, uh, observe a, a, a differentiation between the goodness of that original creation and the necessary additional grace of the new creation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's that old notion of the supernatural, right? It is a nature that's mm-hmm. already there, but it is added to when God gives this gift, you know. Uh, and mm-hmm. that, and that's why, you know, I, I, I thought it important early on to distinguish between that supernatural and then like the CW show supernatural. It's not that, you know, hearing about Jesus turns you into a vampire or whatever else that would entail but i mean this is human nature has a certain limit to be sure but it also has a certain shape that allows it to extend beyond itself when god gives this gift mhm yeah i mean and and 
we've, we've, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I assume that we've probably seen this happen in our children. Um, my oldest son, Baron, um, he just hates to eat. <laughs> There's food that he will eat, but if you offer him something new, yeah, no, nothing new. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new that he could possibly like. You have to, f- you, you practically have to force something to get inside of his mouth. The first time that we, that we gave him chocolate, like for his birthday, you know, he's, he's looking at this thing with suspicion. Like what kind of poison is this? <laughs> and I'm having to hold his head while he thrashes to try to get this little bit of fudge icing on the end of my finger onto his tongue, right? His, his teeth are clamped shut, but I managed to kind of get that little bit of chocolate in there. And he stopped and he looked at the cupcake and he then proceeded to eat all the icing off the top of it because he was still <laughs> suspicious about the cake. But nice. he, right. And, but it, but it's that moment. Like, did I, did I brand, did I wipe my child's brain? No, <laughs> he still had all the same faculties that he did before, but now he knew that chocolate was actually awesome. Mm. It was a game changer. Anyway, I, I, I think I think Edwards wants to still preserve the the role of the will and the reason and all the rest of that, but say that yeah, there there is a real game changer here that makes the difference between the person, the 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 professor who could recite the creed alongside the believer, and nonetheless, um, their heart is unchanged. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I can't help but think of this sermon as taking its place in a certain intellectual moment, one in which the Enlightenment's critical eye turns upon the doctrines and scriptures of Christianity, and in which new characters arise on the Western scene, writers who know the text of the Bible sometimes better than believers do, but whose study leads not to piety, but to skepticism and suspicion of religion. What does this sermon have to say to such an enlightenment moment? And to what extent does that world translate into our own? I think we've actually covered a good deal of this already. So I'll go through it kind of quickly. We talked about Locke's influence on Edwards, the the degree to which Edwards is an empiricist rather than a, a rationalist. And I think you see that, um, in his treatment of reason and revelation, he says essentially that reason before special revelation is incomplete if it's not faulty altogether. Reason after special uh, special revelation is perfected. It's almost a return to a prelapsarian world, but you've got to have this experience of God before you can reason properly. Mm-hmm. I also see a little bit of David Hume in the essay, uh, and that's anachronistic because – Hume's um, treatise of human nature is still seven years out at the time Edwards preaches this sermon. And I wonder, in fact, if Hume had maybe read Edwards. But uh, he says, uh, Edwards says, It is not a thing that belongs to reason to see the beauty and loveliness of spiritual things. It is not a speculative thing, but depends on the sense of the heart. So Mm -hmm. the divine and supernatural light is aesthetic, it's moral, and it's emotive. And those three terms are, if not identical, they are very, very closely connected for Hume. Right. Um, his, 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 uh, both his aesthetics and his ethics are based on, on emotion. And, uh, and of course the aesthetics and ethics are very similar in Hume. So that's, that's where I see the, uh, the enlightenment. It is, it is that very empiricist British Isles enlightenment rather than the, uh, more speculative continental side of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, to that I would add, you know, this is the... I mean, we, we haven't gotten up to Julius Wellhausen yet, so we don't have sort of modern biblical scholarship as we know it now. But we're certainly into a period where David Hume and others are writing books about the Bible where they are, you know, exploring them as historical artifacts, as things that uh, emerge from a certain moment in history and, you know, uh, have their own... Um, I, and, I, and I'm going to use this word anachronistically as well, but their own objective character apart from any kind of relationship that a believer might have to them. So I, I, that that dynamic rising in this period also kind of leads me to say, okay, uh, this might be a good a good sermon to preach in that moment. And the reason I thought of the the bridge to the 21st century is that, you know, I think that in our own moment, uh, with writers out there, you know, whether you're talking 60 years ago with Isaac Asimov or three years ago with Bart Ehrman, you know, you've got writers who know the text of the scripture extraordinarily well, uh, but who, you know, approach it as uh, something that is, you know, at the most a, you know, a fascinating object for historical study, uh, or sometimes even, you know, a, the sort of root of a uh, harmful ideology, uh, and and I, I might I might be stretching a little bit too far putting that into Edward's own day, but I think that at the very least there's some potential for translation there. What do you think, David? I I, I agree because there's one there well there's a, there's a a way that um, a particular stripe of of evangelical Protestant, which you know. Um, I, I would consider this my corner, um, wants to talk about Scripture as the ultimate authority um, and Scripture as having a kind of clarity uh, about, what, uh, about what it has to say. But there's often a way of articulating that that, that then locates that, that clarity in the grammatical historical method of reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that method can be applied without Edwards' divine and supernatural light. Right. Um, and when it is, it often doesn't result in readings that lead you to say, wow, the Bible is, you know, is clear, you know, is clear and from God. Mm-hmm. Much less that I have encountered the real, true God in this text. Right. So that, so that there's, so that there is this, something else mm-hmm. um, that that I think divine and supernatural light helps us to helps us to see um, it reminds me of a couple of things um, Tilka's little exercise for young theologians mm-hmm. about which we um, did an episode a few years ago yes which which talks about um the importance of remembering that this is not just an academic subject but this is but you're dealing with high and holy things mm-hmm. um that's that seems to be connected here to to the way you're you're uh, to the direction your your question's going um but also gregory ah, nazianzen i think five theological orations yeah that's anyway that's gregory of nazianzus uh-huh Okay, all right. So the way he's uh, his his first or, or theological oration is not everybody needs to be talking theology. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, is is that this is this is not an exercise for the for for 
for the human mind. This is not your fun puzzle game. You're dealing with high and holy and above all real and therefore perilous things. Mm. Um, and if you don't have the sense of that, you're going to do your Bible reading and then after that your theology wrong. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I do think that there's something important that Edwards, uh, Edward, Edwards is, is doing here. It's not going to be a super popular thing for us to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if we believe that the Bible tells us real things about the actual world we live in, including real things that happen to us as a result of the true things that are in it, um, I feel like I'm going to end up having to say something like Edwards, mm-hmm. you know, as so, you know, here I stand scripture <laughs> <laughs> scripture reason all those martin luther things and you know it's not i i don't i don't think it will be super popular but i i do think that we've got to that we end up having to say something like edwards at this point well and to go back to michael's uh distinction between content and structure i think at a minimum we can say that you know even if you think that you know the way that edwards puts forth the content of what distinguishes someone who hears the word and responds in faith versus someone who hears the word and responds with skepticism, suspicion, so on and so forth. Even if his mm-hmm. content we disagree with structurally, there is a need for some sort of account there. So I think at a mm-hmm. minimum, he points us to a, a question that perhaps didn't occur to us before. And in my mind, that's what a, a good book is for. Absolutely. Well, guys, this is not a lengthy text, and uh, listeners, I'm going to encourage you, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, and there'll probably be one up on the Facebook page as well, so you can go read this. Um, you know, it's it's a sermon-length text, so it's one that you can take down fairly easily. But, as usual, whenever we do a, a text that is a good text, and I think this is one, my questions are going to be idiosyncratic, and no doubt miss some important passages and ideas. Uh, so I want to go around the horn. Uh, each of you, I'd like to highlight something about a divine and supernatural light that we've not engaged fully today. And uh, David, won't you go ahead and start? In this narrative, Jesus takes three of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, to a mountain, and there he is transformed uh, into this radiant, um, heavenly form. Still recognizably Jesus, but it's it's jesus in his in his majesty as divine king um and with him is the prophet elijah and moses and they have a conversation about what we don't know um but edwards quotes second peter 1:16, in which um the apostle writes we have not followed cunningly devised fables uh when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And uh, the, the point that Edward wants to make is that um, Peter appeals to the, his, his eyewitness testimony to this mag- majestic, visible glory of Christ as, um, as a fact that, um, that he is basing his testimony on. Um, and what Edward wants to say is that this divine and supernatural light is a vision of this of a spiritual glory that is 
not just comparable, but is the same thing as. Um, so Edward says, if a sight of Christ's outward glory might give a rational assurance of his divinity, why may not an apprehension of his spiritual glory do so too? Doubtless Christ's spiritual glory is in itself as distinguishing and as plainly showing his divinity as his outward glory, and a great deal more. For his spiritual glory is that wherein his divinity consists, and the outward glory of his transfiguration showed him to be divine, only as it was a remarkable image or a representation of that spiritual glory. So what Edwards is saying is that those of us who've wished that we could have beheld the transfiguration, um, those that wish that we could say with Peter, we were eyewitness of his, eyewitnesses of his majesty, uh, Edwards says that if you have, if you have tasted the glory um, through this divine and supernatural light, you have the same kind of testimony as the apostle. Um, you you also are a witness of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that that I think is a is a really um, uh, for me a very a, a very edifying um, consequence of this uh, of this homily. Very good. Michael, what do you got? The text of the Bible on which this sermon is based is the, the scene in which Peter tells Christ that he's the Messiah, Christ is the Messiah, not Peter, and Christ says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. I find that to be in tension with what Edwards is saying here. Um, much of what he says about the divine and supernatural light would not seem to apply to Peter. He says... It reveals no new doctrine, it suggests no new proposition to the mind, it teaches no new thing of God or Christ or another world not taught in the Bible, but only gives a due apprehension of those things that are taught in the Word of God. And he says it is not given without the Word. Is what Edwards experiences really of a piece with what Peter experienced? I, I mean, <laughs> I suppose you could say that the, the groundwork for Christ being the sort of person Christ was, is was laid in the in the Hebrew Bible, but certainly it's not in the Hebrew Bible that this particular first century Jew was the Messiah. So at some point we're having to go beyond what the Bible says, at least in Peter's revelation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe it's just a bad use of the text or what? <laughs> hard, hard to say, hard to say. Um, honestly, I, you know, since I wrote the question set, I kind of hit the bits that I was going to point out. So just kind of as a global observation, I mean, this is kind of tying together some of what David and Michael have been saying. Uh, this is a wonderfully complex text. If you are, uh, skeptical of the ability of the homily as a form to contain, uh, genuinely sophisticated and complex theology, go read some Jonathan Edwards. I mean, this is really, really good stuff. Um, you know, all of these realities that, you know, in some senses are contradictory when you try to hold them next to each other, uh, Edwards weaves them together masterfully. I mean, the idea that, uh, this is supernatural and yet it awakens things that are latent in nature. Uh, the idea that this comes only from God and yet it reserves a place for the hearing of the gospel spoken, which is a function of the senses. 
uh, all of these things are going on in this sermon. It's just a really, really nice read. Uh, so I encourage you read uh, listeners again. Uh, go to the Facebook page, go to the blog, find the text of this sermon. Give it a read. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, at any rate, uh, this has been a good conversation, I think. And I think we can start thinking about next week. Uh, what is going to be on the plate for next episode? I hope this is of general uh, interest to our listeners. I'm not sure that it will be, but given the time of semester, we're going to be talking about grading. <laughs> uh, so yes, yes, listeners, uh, you can await some weeping and some gnashing of teeth as we talk about uh, what occupies so much of the academic life in the month of November and also what makes uh, you know, the National Novel Writers Month such a cruel joke for academics. Um, but... While you're waiting for that episode to come, we encourage you to go to iTunes, leave us a review there, come to ChristianHumanist.org, leave us some comments on the show notes, drop in over at the Facebook page, the Christian Humanist Podcast is the name of it, tell your friends about us. This is a conversation that we're having. We always enjoy hearing from you, and you can tell us what you think at the Facebook page, at the blog, or by emailing us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist Radio Network is the home of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern, who's going to be doing entirely too much editing on this one, is Amber Lee Copeland. And in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>